0: I'm sure all of us have heard at one time or another that you should be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. We've all heard the stories about the lottery winners who end up, you know, gaining money but losing family and even losing at times wealth and so forth or squander all the the winnings in some kind of, you know, strange uh, and opulent way. Or the person who spent their whole life focused on a goal only to achieve it and to feel somehow that they're emptier for it. Uh, and reading one article this week uh, about a lady who spent her whole life planning to retire comfortably. This is where she put all of her eggs. It's why she, you know, grounded out every week and was really eager to make sure that when she got to her retirement year, she would have everything necessary for that time. And she writes this, "'While I achieved it, it never occurred to me once that once I got to this point in my life, My parents would be dead, that I'd be too tired to do all the traveling that I'd put off, that I wouldn't have any hobbies to keep my busy mind quiet. This is nothing at all like I thought it would be. And so I think we all understand that idea, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. But I wonder if one were to say, be careful what you ask for from God, you just might get it. If we would feel the same way, I mean, is that a true sentence? Does it does it sound right? <laughs> well, our text this morning answers that question, and for us also brings with it a warning. And so, I want us to see, first of all, this morning, the rule we want. The rule we want. I mean, last week we saw Israel really uh, at a high point in this book so far, repenting, and God coming to their aid, fighting for them, defeating their enemies. And this week, we encounter quite a different scenario altogether. We don't know how much time has passed between chapters 7 and chapter 8, but it seems like it's been a good deal of time. Samuel is now old. He has grown sons who are judging along with him uh, in Beersheba. Uh, there has been quite a span from that high point of repentance and reconciliation to where we find ourselves this morning. And unfortunately, as we learn about Samuel's sons, we see a lot of similarities, not between Samuel and his children, but between Eli's sons and Samuel's sons. Much like Eli's boys, these ones are prone to take a bribe, they pervert justice, even in their calling to be those who really police justice in Israel. And so naturally, the people aren't real eager to have them rule over them. And so we learn that the elders of Israel gather together, and they come with one voice to Samuel, and they say to him, we want you to ask God for us, that He would give us a king, so that we could be like the other nations. And so Samuel goes to God, no doubt, you know, a little down in the mouth, dejected, and he's about to go pray to God that he would lose his position in Israel, and that his sons would lose theirs as well. I mean, he has served faithfully since boyhood in this nation, and he's being rejected by the people, and obviously some of what spurs it on is his son's behavior, but he can't help but take it quite personally. And so he goes to God, and he's you know a little uh, dejected by the whole thing, and he says to God, uh, you know, this is what the people want. They want a king to judge over them. You know, they want a king to take my spot. And God's response is interesting. I mean, maybe you've seen uh, the, the film The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the Coen brothers' collection of short films. Uh, well there is one in there where James Franco's character, there's this, this you know, somewhat hapless crook, Uh, who chooses the wrong bank to rob early in his career. And because of it, uh, he is uh, judged and he's supposed to be hung. Uh, He's there awaiting his hanging and somehow uh, gets rescued at the last minute. He's randomly spared. But in that same film, it ends with Franco once again captured, once again convicted. And now he's standing on the gallows, again with a noose around his neck. But this time he's joined by three other criminals, all of them about to hang together. And as the ex- executioner begins to make his way down the gallows, bagging each man's head as he goes, the first man's uh, ha- head is, is put under uh, cover, and the prisoner next to Franco begins to, you know, start to shake and tremble and weep because he knows what's about to come. James Franco's character who's been taking the whole scene in turns to him, sees the commotion going on next to him, this man chattering in fear, and he smirks and he says, first time? Well, that's what God is about to say in our text. (laughs) Samuel comes to him hurt, downcast, rejected by the people, and God looks at him and says, oh, First time? This is how it's been with me from the beginning. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. You're doing my bidding, and this is kind of what comes with it. But since the day I took them out of Egypt, notice God looks at the whole history of Israel since He's made them His special people, and He says, this is how they've treated me. From the beginning, time and time and time again, they reject me for some other sort of rule. And of course, it stretches a lot further back than Israel's inception. It goes back to the beginning of mankind itself. I mean, we had never liked God's rule, not for long anyway. Most of Israel's history, most of our human history can be summarized as a people rejecting what God offers in His uh, desire to be their king for some other form of rule that we think will satisfy or protect or bring us the, the desires that we So desperately want. I mean, oftentimes people come to this text and they think it's a kingship issue, you know. God doesn't want them to have a king, and that's why there's this offense. But of course, that's not the issue. They weren't wrong in asking for the king. Uh, We look all the way back uh, to the beginnings. You know, you look in the book of Genesis, Abraham is told early on that kings will come from him. We learn as the tribes are being recounted, you know, all of uh, uh, the sons of of Jacob, we learn that Judah, from him, the, the, the king's scepter, will never depart from their family line. So there's this idea that kingship is going to come to Israel someday. And in fact, the book of Deuteronomy has rules for it when that day finally comes. I mean, the book of Judges can hardly hide its prejudice that it's time for a king. And these are the times that we're living in, you'll remember. This is the period of the judges, and you'll remember the refrain in that book, there was no king in Israel at this time, and therefore everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, it really isn't apologetic for the fact that we need a king pretty desperately because this nation is in turmoil. And even dear Hannah, as she sang her song early on in this book, ends it by saying God will give strength to his king." And so it's not that kingship is an issue. And so with that in mind, what makes this request so problematic? Why does God's view of it, in His mind, mean that it's an outright rejection of Him and His leadership? Well, look real closely at the language. Notice what they say, "...give us a king like all the nations." One that is reflective of every other king out there that looks just like the nations that we're up against. That request in God's mind is tantamount to rejecting him altogether. Why? I mean, make us like all the other nations. What's the point of being Israel if you're going to be just like all the other nations? Their very calling was to be to God a peculiar people, a special treasure. A nation different from all of the other nations because they had this unique relationship with the God of all creation. They lived under His rule, under His law, and under His guidance. And they were a light then because of that to every other nation that they encountered. I mean, what makes them special is that they are unlike all the other nations because of who their God is and how He rules over them. And they say, the two things we don't want is we don't want to be unlike them and we don't want you ruling over us. Other than that, everything can remain the same. I mean, if God was going to give them a king on His own terms, as He will eventually, He would have to embody His ways. He would have to be a king that somehow reflected God and what He was like. He would have to rule by the rules that God instituted. He'd have to reflect again the character of God. He would be a God that was a man after God's own heart. But the people are saying very clearly, we don't want that. We want to be unrecognizable from the others. I mean, they, in a very real sense, want to congeal back into the whole world that they left behind. You know, it's that same refrain that God's heard throughout the whole wilderness wanderings, we just want to go back to Egypt to the way things were. I mean, by requesting a king of this kind, they are rejecting the whole theocratic arrangement altogether with his God and with his laws and with his chosen way of leadership And you can see this very clearly when they make the request a second time, and it's more than a request. It becomes a demand in verses 19 and 20. They say, no, we do want a king, notice, to judge us, to go out before us, and to fight our battles. We want a big, tall, strong king that we can see and that will lead us. They don't want what God had offered them, which was, I will go before you. I will fight your battles. But God's way of doing that, of course, is very difficult. It's difficult to imbibe. He doesn't tell you exactly how He's going to do it. It's very unpredictable. Uh, They've had several encounters where God doesn't act as immediately as they would like Him to or in the manner that they would like Him to. And so they say, we want to be done with that altogether. We just want to do it like everybody else does it. We want a strong king who will go out and fight on our behalf and lead our troops. We don't want to be having all this prayer and sacrifice and then walking around and waiting and blowing trumpets and thunder and all of these things that we can't control or predict. We want it manageable, visible, tangible, predictable, and tame, just like them over there. That's how we want it. And that really is the battle, isn't it? God's way of ruling our lives... Versus the way that we would want it. You know, Flannery O'Connor puts it pretty pointedly when she says you become a Christian. She says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. Uh, I mean, how many... Christian teenagers have expressed the same complaint. You know, why can't we just be like everyone else? You know, why do we have to have these particular rules? You know, why do we have to be so weird about the way that we do life? You know, we just want to be like everyone else. Of course, it doesn't stop in our teen years, does it? We just learn to hide it a lot better. You see, a large part of Christian parenting is pointing our children simply back to their identity, right? These are baptized members of Christ's Church, and we have to say to them, well, we don't do it that way because we're Christians, because God is our Father, because His instructions are different than the way of the world. And you know, it really is a managing of these kinds of expectations year in and year out. We may want to be like everyone else, but of course, as followers of Christ, that's just not possible. don't get me wrong, Uh, Christians have done a great job of making God weird in ways that He never asked. Um, Now that said, God's ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts, and if we're going to follow Him, then it is going to be out of sync, of course, with the prevailing culture. He isn't like this world, and if we're His followers, there will be things that put us in direct conflict with this age, you know. Well, why don't you just get revenge? You know, that's what's fair. Why don't you just hold on to your bitterness or just hate your enemies? These are normal ways of acting in the world. You know, why don't you trample over that person to get ahead? Everyone's going to do it, and if you don't do it, they're going to do it to you. Why not just join us in speaking ill? Why not just seek attention? I mean, if you don't toot your own horn, who's going to do it for you? Why don't you just simply do what would make you happy? These are the voices that constantly go through our own minds, and yet they're completely contrary to the ways and to the will of God. And this is what we have here with Israel. This desire for a different way of being ruled and a request for it. But then we learn the cost of our wants. You'll notice this text takes a strange turn that's a little bit hard to not understand, but it's definitely hard to take. I mean, they approach Samuel, and they basically say to him, go and tell God uh, that we don't want him anymore. And God says, my people are rejecting me. And then he says, Samuel, go and tell them I'm going to do what they want. Obey their voice. What a wild thing to come from the mouth of God. This is one of the most terrifying texts in all of Scripture, Uh, and yet it's something we oddly seek on the regular from God, not seeing just how dangerous it is. I mean, it's frightening because God gives them exactly what they want, He looks at their misguided demands with all their built-in horrendous consequences, and He says, well, if that's what you really want, then thy will be done. We often think, well, if God would just say yes to my prayers when I ask for these particular desires, then I would be happy. And if God does say yes to my prayers, then that has to be good, right? I mean, this kind of Willy Wonka theology. Remember at the end of the film when... Uh, Willy Wonka, the, the, the real one, not Johnny Depp. Uh, this isn't in the book, and it was added late in the film, but he turns to Charlie and he says, Charlie, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he ever wanted. To which Charlie replies, well, What happened? He lived happily ever after. Uh, beautiful way to end a movie. Uh, It's just not true. I mean, most of you know that uh, two weeks ago, that's uh, Matthew Perry, the star from the the sitcom Friends, died here in California at his home. Um, And many of you will know that he was pretty outspoken about his own battles with addiction and his own hardships in that regard. But a friend brought a particular interview to my attention this week where Perry's talking about what really propelled his downward spiral. And he says, it was the very first time I ever prayed. He said, I got down on my knees and I prayed, God, if you just make me famous, I don't care what else you do to me. Just make me famous. He said three weeks later, he got a call to star in the show Friends. He said, and God never forgot the second part of that prayer either. Has God ever given you exactly What you want? Has He ever given you over to yourself and all the things that you thought you needed and desired? I mean, has God ever allowed you to expose what was really in your heart? And some of you experienced this, and it's not pretty. In our own confession, it's one of the most pastorally helpful sections, but also one of the most frightening sections of the confession, when it says the most wise and righteous and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a time His own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts. Sometimes to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them, just how strong their corruption is and how deceitful their hearts are in order that they may be humbled, that He might raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon Himself. I mean, is there anything scarier in the world than for God to just let you go to yourself and give you what you want? And yet some of us are asking for this, you know, just let me have my way just like Israel is here. Just give us a king, make us like all the other nations. And yet God in His kindness warns them one last time before allowing this to unfold. I mean, He says, Samuel, go and warn them about what they're going to get when they ask for this. And it's such a perfect description of living under any rule other than God's rule. I mean, it really is uh, a wonderful commentary on how our own sin deals with us, how the world, the flesh, and the devil deals with us. But God describes for them, when you reject me, this is what you're going to receive in return. When you reject me, it is then that you will learn the difference between me And every other form of rule in this world. I mean notice verses ten to eighteen your king will take and he 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 will take six times it's repeated. He will take your sons and your daughters and your lands and a tenth of everything and your best servants and the flocks that you have. He's going to take the fruit of your body, the fruit of your field, the fruit of your vineyards, the fruit of your labor, the fruit of your flocks and all of your household. I mean, notice the bitter irony. The more the king takes, the more the king has acquired, and the more he has needs to be cared for. So what does he do? He takes more from you in order to care for all the things that He's already taken from you. And the process is endless until finally, notice how this devolves, you will be His slaves. Right back where they started from, as slaves in Egypt. This king you want to judge over you will become the judgment upon you. I mean, isn't that fascinating? That is how sin works. Their sinful request has its own built-in consequences. Romans 1 tells us that people who refuse to acknowledge God, God will give them over to exactly what they want. And unfortunately, what they want enslaves them and ultimately dehumanizes them, but they keep getting more and more and more of what they want, and they become less and less and less of themselves. And more entrenched. I mean, we reject God because we look at it and we say it's too costly. I mean, look at all you have to give up. Look at all the things you miss out on. Look at how you know strange the whole ordeal is. And so we say this costs too much, and then we choose something else to rule over us instead. Let me tell you this morning: you know, the syntax is much higher. You know, the cost of sin is far greater than the cost of following God, as we will see. Sin always enslaves. It will never set you free. It will never say to you, I've taken enough. It will take and take and take until there's nothing remaining. I mean, our enemy, we are told, loves to steal and to kill and destroy, and he's very, very good at it. And if I could encourage you young people to just tune in for one second. I mean, learn wisdom now. Don't learn for yourself. I mean, there's always those people that they just have to learn every lesson on their own. That is the stupidest way to live. There are plenty of things that you can learn right now before you have the pain and the consequences that come with learning a different way. Find an honest, older person, and it probably won't be your parents because they don't want you to know what they were like to tell you the pain of what their sin has cost them. I mean, talk to an addict, and they will tell you what began as a party became a prison for them. I mean, talk to the adulterer and about that brief moment of pleasure that ruptured a marriage and a family and fractured an identity. Talk to a greedy person and all the time and energy that it took to acquire and still... They're not satisfied with what they have. Talk to the comfort seeker, the one who just wanted to be left alone, and you will find that they often got what they wanted. They were left alone. I mean, go on down the list. This is what partly makes what Vince Gilligan is doing in Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad so phenomenal, is that the one thing that show gets right is you never get away with anything. Things always come with a cost. You never know what's coming around the corner and it never pays the way you think it does. Sin may appear cheap and easy, but it will cost you a ton. And it will take until there's nothing left to be taken. And so we conclude then this morning with the rule that we never wanted. I mean it is a frightening reality. I mean what hope do we have? I mean what can save us from ourselves? We're You know, hopefully you are a little bit scared of you, which would be a smart place to begin. I mean, a king of our own making will only take from us. But you'll notice this rejected God, this dethroned king, never stops pursuing this people. Even after all that they've done to him. I mean, the rejected God of chapter 8 of 1 Samuel will give. I mean, he so loves the world that He will give His only begotten, a world that from the beginning has chosen a way of rule that is killing them, when He's offered them a peaceful kingdom all the way along. And this King that He gives, King Jesus, you'll notice He doesn't come to take. He doesn't come to be served, but to serve. He heals the sick, He gives sight to the blind. He gives food to the needy. He gives forgiveness to the defiled. He lifts up the bowed down and in utter humility washes the feet of His people. I mean, the King of all, the God of all comes as the servant of all. And though despised and rejected by men, He gives to them anyway. I mean, notice with our terrible track record... With Israel's terrible track record of of rejection and wanting to be just like the nations, He gives anyway. To the point of putting on flesh, He He gives and He gives and He gives and He gives. And the hard part is even then, nobody wanted what He was giving. I mean, this God would stand before His own nation, Israel, bloodied and beaten. "...with a crown of thorns on his head, and Pilate would say to them, Behold your king, and truly behold him, because this is what he's like. This is what your God is like, humiliated and serving on behalf of his people. This is how he gives, and notice what they say. We have no king but Caesar, and just like that, they're like all the other nations." bowing down to the same emperor everyone else has. And still he gave until he finally gave up his ghost while saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, this is how our king comes, humble and weak and crucified. And he comes this way because it's exactly what you need, because you come proud and strong and full of self. When we tried and tried and tried to live this glory story that we've been trying to write in our whole identity, we've wanted it our way, and so God comes to the cross to save us from ourselves. The God who is willing to give them over to sin to show them how needy they were, the God who is willing to do the same for us at times, is the God who comes hanging on a tree with a placard that rings reads King of kings, and it shows us just how good he is, how much he will give to his people. And he calls us today to come to him, to let him reign over us. Come to me, all you who are weary and weighed down. I mean, is that you? Are you tired (laughs) at all? I mean, is life heavy at all? He calls out to you. He says, come to me. I'm not like those other rulers, those ones that have beat you to this particular place. Stop trusting in your scheme and your way to find fulfillment and safety. It's heavy. It's tiring. It does not work. But instead, look at this bloody king, and he invites you, take his yoke upon you. It's easy. His burden is light because he needs nothing from you. I mean, what do you have to give him anyway? You can trust him because even when you rejected him, notice he gave himself for you and he gains nothing. He needed nothing that you can give him. Instead, he gives all. And he invites you, as you look at that crucified king, this one rejected by us, he invites you to see who he is. You see, when Israel rejected God, they learned for the first time what kind of God he is in comparison to the gods of the nations. And on that cross, rejected by us all, We see what kind of God He is, one that you can trust, one that wants your best, one that even though you don't understand, you can finally lay down your arms, stop with all the scrambling, put down your burdens, and let Him carry you. Let's pray.